Hi there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there. How are you doing? Hopefully good on this Friday morning or afternoon or evening or whenever it is that you're listening to this one. Hope it uh, finds you well. It's going to be a short intro, and I mean it this time. Uh, I'm in the middle of a million and one things relating to house moves extensions and all of that stuff so i'm trying to maximize my time and be to the point so i'm going to save some time here last week's episode was with dr william binder a cosmetic surgeon a plastic surgeon in beverly hills what does that evoke when you hear that maybe the actual conversation brings out an awful lot of different topics or topics even than you would imagine so check it out it came out last friday doing really well it actually done very well in the u.s given i suppose that it is a u.s guest and saw some chart positions in the u.s charts for education i hadn't ever got in there before but that's interesting to see and nice of course so this week's episode is with another entrepreneur of sorts and he's actually a serial entrepreneur a serial ceo his name is rana gujral and we connected a few weeks back the reason i was very interested to talk to rana was because of obviously his success and his ability to invest in positive outcomes but also the area that he's now focused on with his new organization around emotional intelligence and as you might know if you listen to the podcast or listen to me bang on about eq or ei it's an area of fascination for me and i believe fundamental to how we can improve and get better if we develop our emotional intelligence so i was interested to see what his company behavioral signals are doing in this space and it's very much focused on creating an artificial intelligence engine that introduces emotional intelligence into speech recognition technology so that's me kind of reading a little bit of a blurb about it and i was fascinated to see how that would work or get examples or scenarios of how that would work and rana shared some of the work that they're doing in this space very very uh, interesting exciting time obviously for ai but trying to crack emotional intelligence will be a big challenge a big hurdle but they seem to have made some great progress in it already i learned a lot about rana as well about his career about his successes his failures how he's always learning and interesting to see that self-awareness and reflecting are massively important to him as he continues to grow and improve and get better so lots of useful insights lessons learned takeaways that you could hopefully take on board and put into practice yourself in your own endeavors whatever they might be so i'll leave it there enjoy this one with rana thanks for checking it out as always like follow share if you think it's of value only if it's of value if it's not let me know what could be done to make it more useful thanks a million and enjoy good luck hey folks welcome to one percent better the podcast all about trying to help folks improve potentially by 1% or more uh, through the uh, interviews I have with my guests. And and this one, I've been excited uh, to talk to this week's guest for a while. So Rana Gujarat, thanks for coming on to the podcast. I'm excited about your your bio as an executive, a speaker, investor, and most recently CEO of Behavioral Signals. That's correct. So looking forward to hearing your story. And what I suppose sparked uh, the, the most interest for me is the role of emotional intelligence within behavioral signals and how that works with AI as a an executive coach and somebody that's fascinated of about EQ. I'm very interested to hear how this uh, this plays with, with AI. So looking forward to hearing your, your story. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for having me here. I, I really am looking forward to this talk. Good, good. I, ho- I Hopefully I'll, I'll spark something off that you haven't thought about as well. That's always my objective uh, for sure. So one question I like to ask recently, what's the most recent thing you've learned? Is there something you've learned in the last day or week that stands out? Oh, wow. Um, you know, oftentimes I, uh, it's for me, it's uh, oftentimes it's just a reflection um, 
back of, of things uh, which I've learned back in the day. And oftentimes it's sort of like, you know, slowing down. It's funny. I mean, you asked me this question. Uh, just like yesterday, I was reflecting, uh, you know, someone asked me, um, hey, um, you know, we've learned uh, a bunch of things from, from the things that you've written. Um, and I, I mean, I've been writing uh, for the last few years a uh, bunch of articles out there. And most of those things have been about my life experiences as an entrepreneur, things I've done, you know, successes, failures, and everything in the middle. And um, so someone sort of referred to an article about uh, how uh, I almost, uh, the title was uh, how I almost killed my startup. And uh, I sort of talked about a few big mistakes, which I did, but we recovered from it and we still succeeded despite of it. And I was like, I, I got to go read that again. Hopefully I'm not doing those things again today. And so I, I was like, I stopped everything. I sort of looked up and searched that article and I read it end to end. This is what I wrote a couple of years ago. I was like, I just want to make sure that the things I wrote about, um, I'm not doing that today currently. Um, so for me, it's, you know, it's a little bit of uh, continuous sort of reflecting back and recycling, reprocessing, making sure, um, you know, it's, it's, for, it's about making new mistakes, right? So I don't, I don't want to make the old mistakes again. So it's, uh, it's really that. Yeah, I don't know. That. <laughs> I don't know. It answers it nicely. And I think self-reflection definitely is, is going to be hopefully something we talk about during this, especially as it links to emotional intelligence. Um, your point about reading an article you've wrote a couple of years ago, I kind of have done the same sort of thing recently. And it's hard to ever be completely, you know, whatever you're writing at that moment in time things can change a couple of years down the road and i would yeah. imagine in your world if you're writing a lot and journalists pick up an article that you wrote two years ago and you said but you said this and now you're saying something different do you find your your kind of views alter and change yes for sure i think i think the views change because you know um our perspectives change and our abilities change and our abilities to process uh, information changes and so the views changes accordingly. Um, and I feel, you know, um, it, it is really what, um, what makes us uh, or gives us this unique ability to see the opportunities that we see it. It's the life experiences. And it doesn't have to be all good ones, right? I mean, uh, oftentimes it's the, the tough things that you have done or you've been through in your sort of, your, you know, your upbringing or sort of like, uh, you know, your scenarios which you have dealt with in the past that allow you to see a certain situation very differently from the next person. And that allows you to then process that information differently. And that's, that's, that's your perspective and view. And then what you do with it is really what translates into when you say uh, capitalizing on an opportunity or grabbing an opportunity. Uh, well, not everyone sees those opportunities the same way, or not everyone even sees those situations as an opportunity. Or, you know, um, something to uh, something to course correct on or uh, as a point of failure. I mean, it doesn't have to be all opportunities. So I think, yeah, I think it's a process of continuous evolution. I mean, for me, it's, uh, it's a process of continuous reflection on where I've come from, you know, what I've achieved, uh, where I'm going, where I'm headed. Um, how do I view, even how do I view the goals um, that I've had? over over the years have they changed do i still want to do that um am i still working towards the things that matter to me at this point of time um and oftentimes the answer is uh no i mean the goal that you think you have that doesn't really matter to you it's not really appealing or you know it, it, maybe maybe it was a big deal a few years ago and at this point so then you reflect and say okay then what are you working towards and, um, you know, so for me, it's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's definitely something which I do a lot. Mm, very good. I find myself nodding a lot. I think I'm going to agree with you. I'm trying to too much probably all the way through this. Um, so maybe just take it back to when you were a young boy. Uh, you, you originally from the UK. Where did you grow up? I grew up in India. Uh, my dad was in the armed forces, so we never really stayed in one city for more than a few years. So I was like all over the map. Um, I did my early schooling out there. Um, and then um, I've, I've been in Australia. I've been in Japan. I've been in UK, uh, mostly due to uh, different work assignments uh, and uh, some of the, you know, some of my education uh, pursuits. 
And then I've been in Boston for many years. I've also lived in Canada. Um, now I'm in San Francisco. But I'm in the Bay Area, to be exact. <laughs> to, to be exact. No, very good. Because when yeah. I was doing a bit of research, I had noticed, I think you went to university in, in the UK. Was that where you did your yeah, first so, degree? Yeah, so it was a funny thing. So uh, well. I was doing my undergrad, um, and it's been um, that example is reflective of how I've led my life. Um, when I did my undergrad, my undergrad was in computer science engineering, and what, that was my calling. That was my passion. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, but like halfway through it, I realized that there's a lot of other exciting things I'm not really learning, which is things around business and sales and marketing. And I didn't want to wait until I graduated. So I actually signed up uh, this program from, um, you know, TAC UK, uh, which was this, uh, this sales and marketing program, which, uh, which I did sort of uh, as a night school. Um, and then after I graduated, uh, I had this opportunity to be in UK uh, to sort of uh, finish that up and wrap that up. And that kind of what led me to, uh, you know, uh, towards that experience. Okay, very good. So, so when was the first time you became aware of emotional intelligence, or, or even what what that might have been termed, you know, twenty years ago or so? So, you know, um, to be to be uh, to be honest, I mean, uh, what we do at Behavioral Signals is really uh, processing emotions on speech data. And we apply it in different ways. Um, I mean, uh, we, we bring an aspect of emotional intelligence to uh, human-to-machine conversation and an aspect of emotional intelligence to a lot of uh, specific business use cases. Um, but emotional intelligence is, uh, is a much bigger, you know, sphere of uh, research or understanding or the scope is pretty large. I mean, it, it transcends into... Uh, an aspect of core intelligence, like, I mean, either it's EQ or EI, uh, you know, in terms of self, like, are we emotionally aware? And uh, it's definitely something, you know, uh, in terms of, like, you know, a market opportunity or uh, as, um, as, a, as a potential for a startup or a business, um, I, I definitely haven't been aware of it uh, until more recently when I came across uh, behavioral signals. Um, it's something which I have watched closely in the sense, like, I mean, if you look at um, what's happening in voice interactions, I mean, and this is an area which I'm quite passionate about. Uh, voice interaction is um, the next big thing for artificial intelligence. It's the experience, it's the interaction that uh, is tremendously um, you know, powerful in many ways. It's because it's the most natural way for humans to interact with anything, with anybody, right? I mean, you could, you could type or you could touch, and touch is definitely better than typing because it's a little bit more natural. And that, that's why we've seen sort of the advent of smartphones, which are pure touch and other, other touch experiences. Um, but voice is even more intrinsic, right? Everyone speaks and everyone likes to communicate each other with speaking, by, by just speaking. And so for what's happening, what's happened in the, the voice and the speech industry, um, so there's multiple parts to it, right? And so there is the, the, the core linguistics, which is the NLP and NLU, which is the processing of the natural language and understanding it. And that, that about five to seven years ago uh, wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, something which, uh, which you could say was very accurate. Uh, but fast forward, it's state of the art. I mean, it's superbly accurate. It's predominantly accurate. I mean, it's it's something which you could take it to the bank. I mean, it's it's even more accurate than you know humans process often at times. And then the other part has been building specific context engines around. Hey, how do you apply that to say uh, a doctor-patient relationship? That's very domain-centric. Or how do you apply that to say a contact center or a customer engagement vertical? That's very domain-specific. Um, and that also has evolved tremendously over the last few years and there are extremely sophisticated contexts and models and engines that have emerged what is the what is eluded ai or what is eluded the 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 core and the crux of the voice interaction over the last uh, so many years has been the concept of you know understanding emotions because when you're speaking you know you are conveying emotions and that's what 
I came across as what you know the opportunity around behavioral signals and that's superbly exciting to me because it's sort of the it's the missing link it's the missing link in uh the core voice interactions whether it's human to human or it's human to machine mm-hmm. okay very yeah. interesting and just as you were talking through that as well you're saying voice is the the next big thing when we're ex- when we're talking you know obviously we have a lot of physical attributes going on our, our gestures and our body language is there anything even in in the early stages looking at how that is tying in? Because you express a lot of emotion with with your body language. I'm pointing at you now, and I'm, you know, just yeah. that's just kind of jumped into my mind. It's just interesting. Is there anything looking at that? Yeah. So I mean, that's a great question. I mean, conveying emotion it's a multifaceted uh, area of uh, research. Um, what, what, what we do at Behavioral Signals is we, we focus exclusively on speech data um, and human voice. And we, we basically use that uh, to deduce human emotions. And uh, there are other aspects of deducing human emotions, such as you know, looking at facial expressions. We, we don't really tend to focus on that, and there's a specific reason why. Um, there, there is, uh, there's a lot of research. In fact, a new research that came out, uh, by Yale, uh, that measured accuracy of deducing emotions through various means. And what it did was it, uh, it started with, uh, voice data and it deduced emotions using voice data, using some of the technologies available out there. And it measured its accuracy. Then it added facial expressions. And so essentially it, it was using the audio of a video and then it allowed the whole video to be processed. So it allowed the audio to be processed and also the facial expressions of the speaker to be processed. And the accuracy of the emotions that were emerging uh, in terms of how, how, the, con- how the various uh, participants in the conversation is feeling actually went down. Um, and you'd expect it to go up, uh, but it actually went down. And the reason there being is that we as humans um, are fairly adept in masking our emotions uh, through our uh, facial expressions. And uh, but we're not so good in terms of masking it through our voice and our, uh, our tonality. And so if you're focused just on tonality, uh, you actually have a better and more accurate read uh, of emotion data. And so for us, is we're applying uh, a lot of this technology towards um, very specific human-to-machine interaction and also human-to-human interactions. And uh, the vast majority of the, the data that we process is pure speech. And in fact, when there is video data available, um, you know, it's, it's preferred for us to use just the audio data because we get a better tone, better read um, on the, the sense of uh, emotion that is being felt behind those words. Um, so that's kind of what we do. Okay. Very, very interesting. We, we'll come back to maybe a little bit more about the, the your current role in, in a little bit, but I am very interested in, in your entrepreneurial journey, and that's something that I, I learn a lot from talking to, to folks like you. Was that something you were always destined to be, do you believe? And that whole debate of, are you born an entrepreneur? Is it something you developed? Is it a bit of both? I don't think so. Um, I don't know if I, well, I know for sure I didn't have those insights or instincts, uh, that, uh, I see a lot of young entrepreneurs have today and I'm very jealous and I, it's, it's like with the one regret I have, I mean, I see, um, like 18 and 20 year olds uh, who kind of have that clear, crystal clear clarity that they, they, they want to be an entrepreneur and they understand that, uh, it's going to be a longer journey and oftentimes you know some some don't but you know they actually actually have clarity around what they want to do for me uh it was a more traditional upbringing um you know it was around hey um what what am i passionate about and i initially was uh, i grew up in a family of doctors um and so my initial passion was to go uh towards that field um and i prepped towards that uh in my early childhood and then I, I realized that it's not something that uh, passionates me anymore, I mean, or excites me anymore. And so I, I geared towards computer science. For me, and that, that those early years was really pushing the boundaries on technology and building products and getting excited about uh, what those products can uh, actually do in real life context. Um, I think I, I got some early opportunities and I grabbed those from an entrepreneurial aspect. And this was when I was still in the corporate setup. And those are opportunities around 
trying out something new, which hadn't been done before, uh, taking a bet and sort of piecing it together end to end and being responsible for it. And so it's almost kind of like doing mini startups. And, you know, I had those early uh, opportunities where someone took a bet on me and say, okay, you go ahead and make that happen. And, um, and I just loved it. And I, 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 I understood this is really what my calling was. And so, um, you know, that kind of gravitated me towards um, building out businesses and looking at other entrepreneurial opportunities rather than just sort of moving the needle on revenue growth. Okay. Um, you know, in a corporate setup. When you're in the corporate environment and somebody's taking a bet on you and saying, you know, go and have a go here, you have maybe a bit of that safety net because you're, it's in a safer environment as opposed to when you go out on your own and, you know, there's more at risk or, or more to lose. How did you find that and is that, was it, was it much different when you did take that leap out? Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, look, uh, I, I think uh, you realize as an entrepreneur, and some realize that sooner than others, is that uh, it's all about risk-reward ratio. And so, you know, you could settle for a lower reward uh, if your risk appetite is fairly low. And uh, if you want to do bigger things and you want to make bigger bets, you got to have a much higher risk appetite. And risk appetite translates into assuming that you're going to fail and learning how you are going to deal with that failure and what you're going to do with that failure. Are you going to, you know, pivot and, you know, react to it and learn from it and then bounce back and do other things? And it's about, I mean, you mitigate that by, uh, by measuring, you know, measuring the, the outcome that you're trying to achieve. And so it's, it's really my simplified way of saying is like, you know, you test, 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 and you, you know, the test, the reason you call it a test is because you're looking for a certain outcome in a certain period of time. That's what a testing means from an experimental scientific standpoint. And it's not always scientific. It's a lot of gut feel, lots of subjective elements, but you're still testing. And tests also mean there's a finite amount of time where either you have achieved the outcome or you have not achieved the outcome. And the next step there should be the double down or discard. And so for me, it's testing a variety of different things and then getting to a point where I have to make that decision. Okay, is this something I'm doubling down on? Because I'm still, I don't want to be in test mode anymore. I want to now really go all in or it's done. Discard, move on, go on, do something else. And so that's really, I mean, entrepreneurial initiatives when when you're doing a startup or you're looking at this uh, or, you know, you're doing other things. I mean, you're just sort of building out various uh, businesses. Um, It's really that. And it's sort of adapting to that risk mindset of, yeah, failure is part of it. I mean, you are going to fail because you're testing and uh, tests fail. Uh, Not every test is successful and it's okay. It's more about you know, doing as many as you can and then applying some sort of a rigor or approach towards selecting, you know, what you want to test and so that it's not a a complete random process. Um, So that's really a mindset. It's all about a mindset and um, that it's, you know, it's it's way harder than it sounds because, I mean, you can't just adopt a mindset. It has to almost, it's like love. (laughs) You know, you almost have to feel it. It has to come from inside you. It's not going to come in by, Listen, uh, listening to uh, a TV show or a motivational speaker or uh, reading a book. Um, you have to feel it from inside and you have to have that moment of reflection and say, yeah, okay, I'm good with this. I'm okay with that. Um, for me, it came in much later. Yeah. <laughs> I wish it was when I was, uh, you know, 20. And, mm. but, I know. Yeah. And, and again, I, I would talk to people about that and this yeah. whole, you know, when is the right time? But uh, from what I believed and the patterns I see emerging from talking to folks that are the time is right when it is right. And when it comes along and those things you're learning along the way, kind of build you up to, to that point to, to maybe give you that appetite or that intuition to, to go in that direction. Would you say your, your value set and value system growing up with your family in, in, in the medical world had, had, I don't know, had given you something to, lead towards this or had, had, had been pushed you in a different direction? I mean, I've definitely um, had a few uh, core values that have been, um, have been imparted into me that have been extremely helpful. 
Um, you know, and the values around work ethic, values around um, never doing something uh, which is uh, not your best, um, you know, having a high expectation of yourself and others around you. Um, and, um, you know, and essentially shooting for the stars and, you know, assuming that you could do anything. And those value systems that have been imparted into me. Uh, and I've, it's some of that has been sort of like, you know, explicit, um, like, you know, what, what, I'd, what my mother would tell me or what my father would tell me. But a lot of that has been also sort of like watching and learning from people around me. I mean, the un reasonable goals they've had for themselves and the fact that they've achieved it and and how they have done it and which sort of has led led into that um i grew up into um a family which has been not very entrepreneurial though right i mean i grew up in a family that has sort of uh, charted very traditional paths of career growth um and so for me um i've always been scared of that in my initial years it's something which has been unknown to me and oftentimes it's also, you know, I feel that, you know, often education is a burden, you know, in, in certain ways. Um, I came in from a family that valued education over anything else. So I then doubled down on that. I mean, okay, I, I need to have uh, X degrees taken care of and I need to go certain to certain schools and I, I need to teach myself more. And then once you have that, then you almost have this inert sort of burden to capital on it. Um, you know, and that's one of those things which I kind of see right now is that, you know, you, you see certain people who in their early 20s or they're during the undergrad programs don't have that burden. They just don't feel like they need to. And they were like, OK, no, I'm going to go towards this calling. Um, you know, I, I, I look at that and I admire that quite a bit. Um, I didn't have that, to be honest. I mean, for me, it was about uh, making sure I checked off all the boxes um, you know, which were the traditional boxes. And only after I'd done that, I had the confidence to go venture out and do other things because I had sort of proven those points. I've achieved success. I've climbed the corporate ladder. Uh, I, I felt that I've proven what I could do uh, the traditional ways. And now for me, it was, well, okay, well, what's next? Uh, what else can I do? I mean, so this kind of feels like I'm now getting into the territory of uh, moving the needle, uh, you know, even though the, the needle moving the needle, it was a substantial effort and was financially rewarding, but it wasn't exciting enough for me. So it was, to be really candid, it was less of a inherent calling, more about I was bored uh, and wasn't challenging enough. And it was not, there's, there's not enough uh, of, a, of like what the next uh, goal should be. And I was like, okay, I got to pick up something really scary and go after something really big. And once I did that, and then it's a drug. <laughs> then, you know, you never want to look back. Sure. And you talked about values, uh, like the word freedom or, or control. What, what do those two kind of do to you when you kind of think about it and how it has an impact on you? Yeah, I mean, freedom and control. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think, again, it's... Um, it's more, I mean, most people feel that this is something which either they, I mean, it's, it's a circumstantial thing. Um, but I feel that when you, um, you know, when you get to that next level of uh, learning and understanding and enlightenment, you realize that it's actually a mindset. It's very internal. Uh, you define your freedom um, and you define the the control that you're limited by or the control you need to have around surroundings. Um, and, and that comes with maturity and time. I mean, you know, it, it's for you to break free. I, I don't think the circumstances changes uh, tremendously around you where now you have more freedom or, you know, you could say, hey, yeah, I'm going to uh, I hear this all the time. Right. It's like, hey, I would. uh I want to do a startup. I, this is like this is the most thing. Like I mean, I'm an active investor, so I meet entrepreneurs every day, and a lot of people are entrepreneurs who want to be an entrepreneur, and they're like, I want to do a startup. Like especially when I'm interviewing candidates, they're all about, uh, what do you, where do you see yourself ten years from now? And the usual answer is, I, I want to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I want to have my own startup. The question is, why not now? 
<laughs> why are you here interviewing for this job? And the answer is, well, I don't think I can do that right now. I don't have the freedom, uh, you know, to make that happen. I want to do it when I have that down the line. Um, I want to have I'm a little bit more financially secure. Then I'll be an entrepreneur. But you never. I mean, you know, then you would have a family. Then you have other things going around you. You'd have other those other things. So I think it's more about you know, it's a mindset. Um, you know, whether you think that way or you don't think that way. And if you are going to be trapped in that lack of control and I don't have freedom mindset, uh, you're going to be trapped when you're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. Uh, you're never going to break free. Mm. And what was, was, what was your point where you broke free? Because this was you were in, in some ways in the corporate environment, but there was... What you're saying there for me is it's almost like you're in a, in a habit or people get into a bad habit of being in the corporate world and I, I understand it completely but then you have to develop a new habit to develop the new mindset. What was the, the turning point for you? Was there a day you said today's the day I'm just going this direction now? Was there like a standout moment? I think, I think there was a growing realization um, that um, that I have to do something else. Um, I don't think there was this one aha moment. I think it happened over course of several years. Uh, there is this one um, um, one learning which I've had. Um, one of my early mentors had imparted onto me, which was um, you know that that sort of wisdom around seeking you know seeking chaos as an asset. And uh, I mean, this this whole phrase, which has now become uh, grossly popularized by uh, uh, this dialogue delivery in Game of Thrones. But I mean, this has existed for many years. And I actually heard this 20, 25 years ago uh, by one of my mentors, this chaos is a ladder, seek it. So this mindset of you have two choices, right? I mean, say as a, as a young, um, you know, young engineer, uh, you know, young person who has two jobs, one is at a tier one company, uh, you know, which is, which has the brand, which has the money and, you know, and you'd be working with some of the smartest people in the world. Um, and the other option, other job offer you have at hand is at an unknown, unproven startup. In fact, maybe even worse, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a company that is falling apart. It's political, it's chaotic, uh, it's a toxic, poisonous atmosphere, and they want to hire you to, you know, do some things in there. Which one are you going to choose? Uh, it's almost a no-brainer. Most people will choose the former. I mean, uh, but where would you grow the most? Where would you make the most? Where would you be felt the most? And where would you add the most value? It's definitely the latter because, I mean, you'd be a cog in the wheel in the first setup because things are already great. I mean, you have the smartest people. You have the best processes. The company is doing great. And, yeah, you'd learn things. But you'd move the needle ever so slightly. In the latter, I mean, even a small improvement you make is going to get noticed and you're going to get promoted and you're going to be given more things to do. And even you learn from the toxicity and the negative environment. So I've always chosen that, always. Like, I mean, ever, whenever I had those two choices. And so for me, you know, I got to a point where, um, you know, uh, getting to a point where, you know, I, from a, from a corporate standpoint, uh, those goals weren't exciting enough because it, it, it all kind of looked the same. It all kind of looked at it, take, take over that department or that business unit. You know, uh, you improve the processes and you tweak it and you, you know, you get the bottom line from X to Y and it just wasn't exciting. So for me, it was like, okay, I got to do something else. I, I have to go build out something that hasn't been built before. I have to go make a dent in an area which hasn't, you know, hasn't happened uh, yet. And so I was on a lookout. So for me, uh, my startup adventure was I came across this company called Viva Systems, which was uh, one of the biggest SaaS plays uh, done by the co-founder of Salesforce. And they built the first vertical SaaS for the healthcare industry. It was a very successful startup. But what excited me the most about that was um, – Rather than building a traditional software system, which was horizontal, which could be applied to multiple verticals, he bet on a very specific vertical, studied that to the tilt, and went ahead to go solve problems for that space. And uh, that's something which no one was doing uh, prior to Viva. And it was like one of the first uh, you know, successful vertical SaaS implementations. 
and I love that model. So I, 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 I realized that, you know, that's what I want to do. And I want to go disrupt a space that uh, no one really cares about or people haven't noticed before. And it's, it's not a problem that uh, will be a big deal 10 years from now, um, like maybe, you know, self-driving cars. But it's more around uh, something which has existed for the last 50 years and no one solved it or they've been solving it in a very ineffective way. And I want to go solve it and I want to have an immediate impact. That's how I decided to do the startup. That's how I got out and uh, did ties back in the day. Um, for me, it was really sort of a culmination of a realization that I need a bigger challenge and then finding that opportunity that I really understood and related to, putting it together and just, you know, making it happen. Very good. As you said, it's a drug. It's a kind of an adrenaline buzz. I'm sure you you kind of uh, you get from these sort of challenges. Yeah. When you've come into behavioral signals, do you have a traditional way when you get into an organization to look at it? Do you examine the the vision and the mission and you know the the kind of traditional setup of of, of a strategy, or have you your own approach? Is there a style you have? I mean, for, for me, uh, looking at the behavioral signals opportunity, number one was uh, what are we up against? What is the, what is the bigger uh, vision out here? And is that something headed by? Um, that, that's the number one thing, which is like, what are we trying to solve? What are we, you know, what are we aiming for? And is that a goal that um, I relate to intrinsically and deeply and I want to dedicate the next, uh, you know, X number of years of my life to, um, cause you know, startup is startups are like giving birth. I mean, you, you're scarred forever. I mean, you know, it, it takes something off you and, um, it, it's not something you want to take lightly. I mean, I mean, I'm typically an all in kind of guy. So if I'm in, I'm all in hundred percent, 200 percent. And, um, so I want to make sure that's, that's the number one thing. So check on that. Uh, that was a that was a big consideration for me, and I spent a lot of times evaluate, time evaluating that. And the other part was, well, who who are the people behind it? I mean, do I relate to their mindsets? Uh, I mean, do I relate to their experiences? I mean, is the kind of team I would love to uh, work with in tandem. And um, certainly, you know, I was really amazed uh, with uh, with with all of those things. And that those were sort of the big decisions for me to. Um, Say yeah, I'm you know I'm gonna come ahead and do this. Is it something I really, really personally relate with, um, and I feel the cause is really worthy and the opportunity is really massive, and the people we're going to, uh, you know, the, the team we have in terms of you know has the caliber to make that happen, um, and I feel if I were to, if I were to do this today as a brand new startup. These would be the people I would work with, uh, either co-found with or hire. And um, so that's actually amazing. I feel incredibly lucky that, um, you know, those all click together because it's, you know, it's a little bit too much to ask. And uh, it did happen. And, you know, um, I feel it's a really good fit. Very good. Sounds like a, a great team set, set up there. Um, just as you have developed i suppose how do you how do you deal with feedback and how do you look to try and improve areas in you that um, aren't as strong as others is there a process you go through interested to know how you improve yes i mean i think feedback is really important um and you know it's also very very hard uh to effectively manage because oftentimes especially when you're the ceo uh, most people are very reluctant to give you feedback. And I think, um, look, you know, certainly, you know, um, I would do the traditional things, which is I'd ask people how they feel about it. And uh, not just ask, um, but ask after I've built trust. So, you know, it's it's really important to make sure you invest in that because people are not going to be, feel comfortable to be vulnerable if, unless you have built trust with them and you're not going to, you know, going to penalize them. You're going to punish them for concrete feedback. Well, personally, I'd say I, um, I don't put too much emphasis on that direct feedback, which, you know, which I'd ask for, because I still feel that 
really as a leader, you have to read between the lines. You have to be watchful of the cues. You have to see how people react to what you have said, uh, their body language, um, you know, their emotional response, and and you have to dig deeper and probe into that. So if you really, if you're really curious as an individual of how someone feels about your decision, you have the answers right in front of you. Oftentimes you don't, you don't want to hear them and you, you're, you have the blockers on and you, know, you don't care about it. And so I feel it's actually not very hard. I mean, if you're really sensitive to it, if you really want feedback on how you're doing um, and how your decisions are being reacted to or how people feel about the direction you're headed, People are telling that to you with loudspeakers on. I mean, uh, they're giving you those cues in multiple different ways. You know, a written, verbal, body language, and it's up to you to take that feedback and, and deal with it and react to it and, and learn from it. And it's also about, you know, how you deal with uh, interaction, right? Whether it is giving constructive feedback uh, or it is, um, you, know, um, you know, just sort of... Uh, um, helping an employee feel more motivated. Um, and those are the things where you get better. I mean, you react to uh, certain cues and you understand, hey, how effective was meeting today? And I often um, come out of certain meetings and I say, okay, that's a C minus. I mean, you, you really bunch that. I mean, those responses were not really accurate. And I, you could see how the other person took it. And so note to yourself, you know, do better next time. And so it's, it's a process of continuous learning. I mean, I, I put more emphasis on the latter, which is, you know, taking in those cues and learning from that versus relying on somebody to explicitly tell me uh, how, how I've done, because most people still hold back, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm sure they're probably afraid of getting getting the fire or something like that. But but that is difficult at all levels of management and leadership of being very open with your with your boss. I I think it's a it's a difficult one. Um, and there's there's probably so many un, invisible boundaries that you just don't want to jump over. Have you ever had a you know flip it where you've had a CEO that you work for that you've actually been able to figure have an influence on them with feedback or, or, or other ways yeah I mean I've worked with some really amazing leaders uh, people who have had a huge impact and they've taught me a lot and they've influenced my thinking um, and I feel in some parts vice versa you know I think uh, I think I've, uh, I've helped influence their thinking and I've helped influence their mindsets in certain ways um, but it doesn't always work that way. Not everyone is like, look, I mean, it takes a certain personality to, uh, I mean, and this is more of a startup founder personality versus a CEO or a GM or a, you know, a VP personality, uh, because in the corporate, um, you know, you are still trying to play by a playbook, um, you know, and so it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit uh, more traditional in terms of like how you think. In as a startup founder, you are opinionated. Uh, you have a very strong worldview, and it's almost sort of like you know you are um, you have a little of a bit of an obnoxious trait in you. You are a little bit of a jerk, and you are superbly intelligent as well. And you have certain abilities to read people. It's a combination of all of that, and. Um, you know, oftentimes it is, you know, it's hard. It's hard to, I mean, it's just like, you know, you, um, some of the successful founders often, you know, put on those blinders and say, I'm not going to uh, be influenced. I'm going to just follow my gut. Um, I'm going to do what I want to do. It doesn't matter if I'm unpopular. It doesn't matter if people feel that I'm a jerk uh, or, uh, you know, if I'm not doing it the right way. And I'm going to still go with my... And it's all, it's all about the outcome. It's all about achieving what I want to achieve, no matter how I've done it. Um, so it's a little bit of, you know, I, I'm not going to judge that. I'm not going to say, hey, uh, who's a better leader? I mean, is, uh, is Steve Jobs is a better leader or is, you know, uh, you know Sundar Pichai is a better leader? Very two different personalities. Um, they're up, for, up with different tasks. Um, they have different uh, goals ahead of them. And um, they, they're, they're coming from different worldviews. And so they're both great leaders. And I think for me, it's, 
when I'm working for someone in the past, I've tried to take the best they have. I've also, uh, over the years, uh, learned a, a lot of things of what not to do. <laughs> it's like, I definitely don't want to do that. Um, I don't want to come across like that because I can, you know, this person is completely oblivious of how, uh, how that impacts someone like me. Um, someone who's very close to that person, but they're, they're just they're just not aware, and how in turn that makes me feel about them. And so I've been sensitive to that, and I was sort of okay. Well, I don't. I would never want my executives to feel that way about me. Someone who I would want, want to build trust with. Um, so I think it's it's give and take, but it's uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's good. No, it's good. To, good to hear the different uh, angles on it. Um, all the way through the conversation you've talked about reflecting a few times and you know emotional intelligence self-awareness is very important it's interesting now you're working with a, an organization that has eq heavily involved in it where has your self-reflection come from is it has it always been there is it something you've developed um i think i think it's always been there i think that's 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 something which has uh been inside me from very early childhood um, and I've always been very aware of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and, 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 and sort of learning from that. And it's, it's, you know, whether early on in my career, early on in my childhood, uh, making those decisions around, hey, whether I want to be X or Y, yeah, I mean, um, that, those are the expectations from uh, the external sources, but what do I really want to do? And do I still want to do that? And, uh, and, you know, in terms of sort of like even my personal relationships early on. And so I think that's just been inside me um, ever since. And uh, that has also led me to make those decisions I've made, whether it is the first job I chose or, you know, the opportunities to pivot, uh, which I took. Um, it's been around, you know, uh, sort of, always being in that reflective mode of what do I really want to do? It's been very calculative, I'd say. I mean, it's um, the decisions that I've made are, uh, have been mostly thought through and calculated versus just random bets. Um, you know, then I feel, I mean, it kind of, it might feel a little chaotic if you look at it from outside view, but I've, I feel like, you know, I've been working towards something at that moment of time. And then what I've been working towards might have changed. So then I've started to work towards something else. Uh, but the decisions I've made uh, have been made with a purpose. Um, and then I've uh, reflected back on them and say, hey, did I achieve that or not? Uh, what did I get out of that? Um, and did I get what I was looking to achieve or did I get something else entirely? Um, and that's just a process I continuously follow. Do you make time in your day or week for that reflection? Or does it happen randomly or do you, you know, in a similar meditation type way, but do you, do you block off time and say, I'm reflecting for this hour a day or whatever? I do meditate. Um, I, but I have to say that the reflection is, um, you know, happening throughout the day, uh, in, in random spots. I mean, it could be while I'm driving back from a meeting, uh, or it could be like, you know, a few hour, uh, you know, a few minutes, uh, before I actually pass out and I'm, I'm, I'm going to bed. Um, and it's, you know, or it could be simply in, in the middle of the day where I decide I need a break. I'm going to go, uh, get some alone time and just put on the headsets and just take, and it's reflections throughout the day. It's whenever it kicks in. Um, for me, it's, uh, getting to a point where I've become aware of when it's happening and then I would pay, uh, it's, uh, you know, pay it's the, the due respect to that, that situation and that feeling and let it happen, uh, versus let it pass, which is like, yeah, you know, there's this thought in my head. Um, I want to think about it. So I'm going to go ahead and find some time to think about it then and there, uh, versus, Oh, it just came and it's gone. And now I'm not even sure, uh, what that moment was. And so I think early on, I probably did a lot of those, and now I'm very, very sensitive to it. So there's a, there's a point of reflection then. I feel it's a fleeting moment, and it's not tomorrow, not an hour from now. It's now. If you do it now, you do it now. Or else write, I'll write it down. So I write down a lot of things. And so if you, if you look at my notebook, I actually have it open right now. It's, you know, it's... It, it just random thoughts in there. I mean, if someone would read it, uh, it would make for <laughs> some exciting talking points. 
um, it, it just like different things in there, which is just randomly coming to my mind. I write it down and then I'll go back and read it and say, okay, do I still want to think about that? No. Okay. Scratch it. But okay. it's there. You mentioned the life of a CEO, a startup entrepreneur, you know, you're, you're a hundred percent, 200 percent in, how do you, there's no percentages left, but what, what, how do you balance, uh, being in and being out and, and kind of just keep, keep yourself stress-free or minimize the stress or manage the stress? <laughs> Not very well. Uh, you seem, you I, seem I relaxed know. enough now anyway, so. I'm see, uh, yeah, uh, I, I feel, um, I mean, I'm, uh, definitely, uh, in the modes when I'm stressed out. Uh, it's a matter of, I guess, uh, being cognitive, cognitive of that, those situations and then, you know, and reacting to it and dealing with it and then snapping out of it. Um, that being said, uh, I do not. In fact, there's a recent talk I did uh, when someone asked me this question about this proverbial uh, work-life balance. I do not believe in work-life balance. I just don't believe that exists. Instead, I believe in uh, what I call seasons, which is um, there's a season for everything, and you, you, you focus on something, and you, you give it your all, right? So, I mean, I would I would tend to... Uh, I would tend to take on a specific task and then I would put in a lot of time. So for me, the boundaries would blur between, hey, um, you know, now I got to pull, pull off this. I mean, I'm all in. And then when I'm spending time uh, more on the family side, it'd be the same, right? I mean, it's like, okay, you know, no, I mean, then things are off. I mean, I'm, I'm focused on that and it, there's no time boundary. There's no time limit. I mean, I'm there, I'm going to give it my all and, you know, it, let it let it play out. Um, and so for me, it's sort of like, okay, you know, taking on a specific uh, goal at hand and an outcome which I'm trying to achieve or a, a certain thing that I'm focused on and then focused on that. And so for it's, it's I'm like, you know, cycling through it. So there's a bunch of different priorities at hand. Um, and it's about, uh, you know, taking a ball in hand versus juggling them throughout the day, taking a ball at hand. And really focusing on that, then putting that ball away, picking the next ball up, and making sure all the balls get adequate amount of time, um, and making sure you cycle through everything versus juggling them continuously. And that's a difference. That's how I sort of visualize it. Which is, no, I'm not juggling uh, because juggling means time slicing. Juggling means trying to balance, and you're never doing anything good, and you're you're dropping the balls all the time, and you're also never really accomplishing um, any of those things properly. Um, so, you know, with that, uh, you know, I, 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 have a, I have a method to my madness. Um, that's how I deal with it. Mm. Interesting. I, I read a book a couple of years ago called Deep Work. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, uh, Cal Newport is the guy, but he talks about focusing for it being 45 minute slots or four hour slots or one week slots or six week slots when you're writing a book and just totally dedicated on, on that task or, or those tasks at that time. Sounds something I try to do something similar as well, but um, it's good to, good to hear that insight from a productivity perspective. Do you have a tech technology that you use apps? Is there anything you uh, use to, to be most productive, you know, keep notes that you, you mentioned there? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I mean, in terms of apps, um, there are some favorites. <laughs> I mean, I use LinkedIn quite extensively and I, um, I use that as a very effective tool. I, you know, I also tend to use certain apps on my phone um, to, to take notes and reminders, etc. cetera. Um, I use Calendar very extensively. So for me, if, you know, you and I uh, decide to talk for 15 minutes, two months from now, it instantly go in my calendar and you would get an invite and then I'm done with it. Um, you know, then I'll deal with it. And so I try to not, uh, I mean, I try to also respect the calendar quite a bit. So, which means, you know, I'm not going to randomly improvise and add things to my day. Um, things happen. And, but for me, moving things around and canceling is more of an exception than a rule and when that happens where I've dropped the ball it's usually because I committed time and I never put it in my calendar or relied on someone to do that and they didn't either 
And now we're at that moment of time where I have not planned for it and it's not going to happen because it's not in it. So, I mean, I tend to sort of, you know, use that as stress relievers because it's like I, I want to process as little things in my mind. I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, not, you know, burn myself about thinking what needs to happen today. It's like let something else take care of it. Uh, I want to keep as much free thinking time on my, you know, in my mind around other things. Um, so any app which allows me to do that, <laughs> which is delegate, put it in, you know, organize, um, is is my favorite. Uh, you know, those are a bunch of different things I do. I'm not sure what apps do I have. I mean, uh, <laughs> no, I'm curious. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's uh, it's the it's the browser, it's the LinkedIn, it's uh, the Messenger, it's Facebook, and you know, all kinds of uh, door opening apps. <laughs> <laughs> very very good. Uh, another one that tells me an insight to the person is is inbox. Uh, do do you have an inbox zero or an inbox three thousand eight hundred and fifty five? I don't. I somewhere in the middle. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's. I mean, the three thousand eight hundred fifty-five uh, would freak me out, uh, and zero, I think, is unachievable. Uh, but I'd say I tend to. Uh, I tend to go gravitate closer to the zero part than the three. You know, three thousand eighty-five. Um, but I mean, and then I mean, I also. I mean, I have a method to that where you know there's there's an aspect of prioritization. And so I don't want to open up a thread, uh, which I can't uh, focus on or can't proceed with. And so at any given point of time, I'm actually pretty good saying no, right? So it's, uh, if someone starts an engagement, say, I'm sorry, not interested or just simply not a priority right now. So I don't want them to send me emails or you know, do that um, until when I'm ready. And so I'd like to keep the inflow controlled. Because my goal is to get to zero, which I've never been <laughs> able to do. Um, but I'd say I'll tilt it towards that rather than uh, the 3,685. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very, very good. I'm going to wrap it up. Just a last one or so. Books. I, I love books. I'm actually reading a book at the moment. Uh, one second. I said, I said I'd get it. It's called... Um, complex habits for for sorry simple habits for complex time i don't know if you've ever ever heard of that oh, wow. it's quite good but there's a lot of uh, discussion in it around feedback and systems and whatnot um that that kind of informs my thinking even when, when i'm listening to some of your answers there um is there any book you would uh, recommend that you've you've used maybe as a, as a ceo as a as an entrepreneur that helped you along your journey that stands out uh, yeah, I mean, I'd say there's, there's, a, there's a couple that, you know, um, that have made uh, a more substantial impression than, say, the rest. Um, I think one of them uh, is a book called The Goal from Elahu, Elahu Goldratt, um, and that, that book is about um, a process improvement mindset. It's about uh, prioritization. It's about focus, and um, it's really a very easy to read book because it's sort of it's a fable, it's a story, um, and it speaks to um, you know the concept of a chain, and you know everything, all the interactions in our life is sort of can be uh, sort of symbolized by a chain, and a chain just by the nature of it being a chain and it has links, um, you know, it has a weakest link. And so when you pull that chain, uh, the, the weakest link is going to give in the first. And so you have to focus on that weak link first. And you have, it's the process of how you identify that weak link and how you focus on that. And the thing is, as soon as you're focused and you've addressed that weak link and you have strengthened that, uh, you have a new weak link because there's always going to be a link that is now weaker than the link which you just strengthened. And so you focus on that instead. So I feel um, that book has served me in, in many different ways and from you know, many different mindsets, um, which I feel um, has made quite an impression in how I've processed things and how I've dealt with things and I've thought through things. Um, so I, um, you know, I, I think that that's a great book to read. I, re I recommend that to anyone who's starting off in their careers and you know, thinking through things. Um, yeah, I think probably that's the most important uh, one. I mean, more recently, I read this book, uh, Ego is the Enemy. Uh, that was a wake-up call for me. Um, I think uh, that book 
touch very close to heart because um, when I first became an entrepreneur, um, I kind of just sort of, you know, jumped into it. And then I had some initial successes and I had, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, gra gravitated towards becoming an influencer. And then you have a platform where people want to hear you speak and you're doing keynotes and you have a fan following and they're sending you email. And what happens is that suddenly you get to a point where the act of doing something actually is more satisfying than actually doing it. And uh, that's kind of where sort of your, that your ego kicks in. And I see that as such a common trap and I've been there, right? So I was there after some of my initial successes where um, I was actually, you know, just happy uh, being in that role than actually doing it. And because it was so satisfying, I mean, you know, you felt like, hey, this is where you want to be after you accomplish that. And now you're already there. So why would you want to do something? Uh, why, do you, why would you want to do a startup? Why would you want to build another business? Uh, I mean, the fame is extremely addictive and um, very corrosive, very, very corrosive. Right. And so I think that book uh, hit very close to home uh, more recently. And that's a book which I've read recently. Yeah. Okay. Two brilliant ones there. I haven't heard of either. Um, I'll put them on my book page when, when we roll this mm -hmm. one out. Fascinating journey into your uh, story, I suppose. Really enjoyed listening to that, um, Rana. And I know we talked a bit about the the new role if you maybe want to call out a couple of things just to wrap up on behavioral signals and how people can get in touch with you and maybe learn more about the organization and what your plans are for for the coming months quarters for sure um behavioral signals what we do is as i uh, talked about it prior um we deduce human emotions through speech data the question is, what do you do with it, right? So we have we have an emotion AI engine, um, and we deliver value towards a variety of different KPIs through what we call emotion as a service. We have a platform that is um, vertical agnostic. So when we apply that engine into the traditional verticals, such as contact centers, inside sales, customer experience, customer engagement verticals, uh, we're looking to solve for problems that are very specific to those verticals, such as matching the right agent to the right customer, um, giving tools to an agent uh, around how should they react to the delivery while they're speaking to a client on the phone live, uh, or you know, doing more complex things such as uh, coming up with a very, uh, very uh, calculated signal of propensity to buy or propensity to pay. Uh, it's all processed by a motion engine behind the scenes analyzing the conversations, analyzing the intent, analyzing the emotion quotient uh, in, in that exchange and, and parsing that into very intelligent insights. Now, when we, uh, when we apply that engine towards uh, very different, different verticals, such as healthcare, uh, you know, we, uh, we're working with a company that is managing patients uh, with depression and they use the technology to uh, you know, predict uh, a propensity for suicidal behavior. Um, now, when we when we apply it to robotics, um, you know, we have certain pilots happening where we are making those social robots or companion robots be more human-like. So they're speaking to a human and they're they're interacting with a human, uh, but their biggest burden is to be more like human. And to be more like human beings, uh, being uh, means uh, being able to understand emotion and be empathetic and being able to react in a way that is conducive to that emotional state of mind. And so we, you know, uh, we work with those companies to make those interactions more, uh, more human-like. And so we, we play in a different variety of different verticals. Um, we, uh, you know, we're a team of researchers and scientists, um, you know, and we have our Emotion AI engine available uh, to to be used by any researcher, any um, you know uh, academic organization. A lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of universities test it, and so it's it's available uh, to download and uh, to use. Um, and yeah, I mean, so go to uh, behavioralsignals.com, and uh, I mean, you could you could also look me up at uh, you know at ranagujral.com, and you know you, you get a link to that in there as well. 
Um, yeah, so I'd be I'd love to. I mean, if you're working on a specific use case that that you find this could be applied to, uh, we'd love to talk to you. Mm, very good. I'm sure there'll hopefully be somebody that will a few will reach out as a result. Um, it's a fascinating area. Uh, I can only imagine it's going to grow and grow. And you're sounding like you're in a happy place in a role you're you're excited about. So it, it's positive. Very excited. Very happy. Uh, very blessed brilliant Rana thanks so much for spending over an hour I appreciate it look forward to sharing this and I look forward to keeping an eye on you and uh, and the the organization Behavioral Signals into the future thank you Rob Uh, again uh, much appreciative of your uh, interest in uh, you know having us here and having me here and uh, giving me an opportunity to share my perspectives thank you for that no problem at all have a great one thanks again thank you Take care. Hey guys, just before you go, I'd love to hear from you if anything specific stood out from that episode, something you might take away and try and implement in your own personal or professional life to help make you that little bit better. On the other side, is there anything you think I could do better to make the show even more enjoyable, more impactful and maybe meaningful? So drop me a note, rob at robofthegreen.ie or connect in on any of the social platforms at Rob of the Green. We also have a community on Facebook. Check that out. If you're really enjoying the show, maybe you could try and leave a rating or a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts app, Go in there, give us a rating, let us know how we're doing. That'll help with the ranking of the podcast, up those charts. The more folks that potentially see it, because we're high up, the better. The more that might listen, that never heard of it before. And the goal of the show is to try and reach more and more people and have that impact more and more. So that's down to you. Please do help me with that. I'm not going down the route of hiring podcast promoters, quote-unquote, from other parts of the world because they say they can help with the ranking and I don't really believe them or it's not very authentic. Help me do it in an authentic way. I'd really appreciate it. This year, I'm going more all in on Patreon. So it's three bucks a month. You can sign up, subscribe to Rob of the Green on Patreon.com. That will give you access to Patreon-only content. Nearly all the episodes of the 864 podcast are on there and new ones will be added only there. The 1% Better Show will have early releases there, but will still come out for free on robofthegreen.ie. There'll also be live shows this year, some phone-in shows, extra content. Three euros a month will hopefully, the more folks that subscribe, allow me to do more and more stuff on there, add more and more content. At the end of the day, that's the price of a pair of socks, maybe, that you might lose, or a coffee. One way or the other, it's up to you. If you want to join, you'll still get free stuff otherwise but if you're enjoying what we're doing help us grow help us expand it i'd really appreciate that adding new stuff onto the website all the time there's an affiliates page under the be better drop down check in there there's training courses that you can sign up to more and more stuff will come in over time into season three now of this fun fun journey huge learning hopefully you're getting something from it too stick with it let's keep going enjoy the journey even more have a great day week weekend and thanks for checking it out good luck